You're listening to the National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views, and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Evo North, uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations, and build a stronger Northern powerhouse together. So welcome back to episode 14 of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. Um, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Craig Jackson, um, who is a Professor of Occupational Health Psychology at Birmingham City University. So thanks so much for joining me, Craig. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so today we're, we're going to have a um, discussion around sort of the ongoing coronavirus situation, but a lot about the sort of messaging and, and whatnot. The um, podcast and this whole conversation sort of came about um, from discussions we had back in early September when we saw um, some quite frank messaging laid out by the likes of Professor Jonathan Van Tam. Um, and obviously it's a situation that's constantly changing. Things have progressed since then. But that sort of core thing that really stood out to both of were about the messaging, that still remains such a key part of it, doesn't it? Um, I don't know if sort of from your point of view you could talk a little bit about what really sparked you reaching out about that? Well, I think that the message that Jonathan Van Tam gave, and let's just remember, he spoke at one of the regular briefings at the time and essentially said that the UK is at a crossroads and behaviours and choices we make now could dictate how things progress with coronavirus. Um, And His language was very straightforward. He he essentially said, we've got to change what we do, otherwise we're going to have a bumpy ride. Now, this is fairly standard, straight medical speak. You know, I've I've worked in occupational health and around occupational physicians for 20 or so years now. There was nothing untoward to me in how Van Tam spoke. It was very clear and straightforward. Um, but some people at the time seemed to have a problem with, with not so much his choice of words, but the directness. But what, what struck me as very interesting is this is how medics communicate. You know, brevity is important and no floral dressing up is required. If you don't give up the cigarettes and the alcohol, you're going to have problems further down the line. That's essentially what he was saying to the nation. If you don't change your coronavirus behavior and become more secure, we're going to have a big problem, a bumpy ride further down the line. Taking a bigger view, I do think that in the initial days of the lockdown, the government messaging was spot on. Um, If you remember, the original messaging that was given to the public was stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. It was wonderful. It obeyed the rule of three. It was what Wordsworth would say, simple language for simple people. And what was really clever about it, of course, is that it, it, it told you to stay home, so that was about the immediacy, save life, that was about our communities, and protect the NHS, and that was about society. So it worked on three levels towards our generative nature. And it was brief, and it was everywhere. TV, radio, billboards, posters, you could not avoid that message, and it was on the front of the podium and the lecterns when we had the daily briefings. And I think where things began to go wrong, of course, was when the messaging then got watered down as easing of restrictions came into view and it became um, 
And again, it, it, it's so vague, it's difficult to remember it. You know, it, it, you're in trouble if your initial message is easier to remember than your second version. That suggests it doesn't work. I'm struggling to remember it now. It was um, defeat the virus. It was in threes, which is good, but it was very vague. It was it was defeat the virus, stay alert, um, and I can't remember the, the the middle one. I mean, stay alert, defeat the virus. These become nebulous terms rather than telling you what to do, which the first message did. This is kind of like vagueness. And one thing we learned very quickly at that period is that people interpret vagueness in their own way. So we had people still maintaining strict coronavirus behaviors. And to be honest, I think they were still adhering to the first message and others kind of taking their own interpretation. It wasn't helped, of course, by the whole Cummings incident and how he said that he interpreted the advice in the way he thought was right for him. I think that did enormous damage to the public understanding and the public, um, the public health message that was being given. It really did become, I think it did a great disservice to the public health message when the whole Cummings incident occurred and when Johnson and colleagues failed to take action and when other politicians failed to condemn his actions, it really gave a muddying of the message for the public. Interestingly, we were talking about Dr. Van Tam a moment ago, you may recall it was Dr. Van Tam who stood at the podium and kind of took a bit of a swipe at Cummings and his behaviour. He was, he was the one expert who wouldn't defend his actions. So uh, I think Van Tam actually had been positioned as the one expert, the one scientific advisor out of the high-profile ones we saw on the daily briefings. He was the one that I think people trusted most because of his honest stance on the Cummings fiasco. I suppose it really is that point of the clarity of messages. As you say, the more this has gone on, the more we've been left to sort of language that's not given a clear instruction. It's open to interpretation, which can lead to issues and problems like this. And I suppose from that side, um, where the likes of Professor Van Tam, they have a medical background. So there is that brevity, that clarity that they have in their general language. Perhaps it's that we need to look more to have those sorts of individuals leading the communications more frequently than sort of politicians where that flowery language is more commonplace. Yes, and, and that's a line you often see that, that tr trod very difficultly. So you may recall that the chief nurse was also occasionally taking part um, in the daily briefings, but she was bumped from the lineup because she also refused to support Cummings's actions, and she was roundly bumped, and she's publicly stated that. Um, and this is the, the constant tightrope you find of you know governing people whilst listening to scientific advisors. And we only saw the other day that uh, Sir Patrick Valance said, and you can interpret these words however you like, but he said that we are the scientists, we advise, and it's up to the politicians how they take that advice and choose to govern. To me, that looks like he is distancing himself from politicians, but I, I do think that both Witty um, and Valance have put themselves in an almost invidious position in that they have not spoken out when they've had the opportunity with the backing of science or, or, the, or the mainstream scientific community, and they've allowed government 
policy and, and government policy and, and economic aims to override their advice that was in the, the good of the public rather than the economy. I do think that the government has taken a little bit of an upturn with their latest version of the messaging, version three, which is now um, the hands, face, space message. And, and again, it's very simple. Rule of three, the radio and TV commercials are very clear. It shows what you as an individual can do to protect yourself, your colleagues and the wider society. So it echoes very much the first message. It's almost as if the second vague messaging had, had never happened and we're wishing it went away. But health messaging is a, is a science in itself. You know, people do PhDs into the effectiveness of health messaging, whether it's about weight maintenance loss or smoking cessation or any other thing that we do. Um, health messaging is, is a science. And it does appear that and this on these particular occasions, they've lost the scientific approach and gone with what fits on a board and might look good. I mean, there were other subtle things that they did get get well. You know, the daily briefing was something that, that was initially seen as a collaborative uh, event. You know, the journalists and members of the public could pop up on screen yeah. and ask questions. And that was great. That felt collaborative. Although the questions from members of the public were vetted and there was only one or two allowed per day, you did feel there was a direct connection twixt people and power. Once those daily briefings stopped, I think that also was a, was a gross mistake because it, it, it told us that it's not a national emergency anymore. The government aren't bothering on a daily basis to keep you, the people, informed. Um, and, and the adverts almost disappeared overnight. The, the, the information uh, commercials, the infomercials you saw about, you know, stay indoors, save the NHS, those almost disappeared overnight. And from seeing them at almost every ad break or every other ad break on commercial TV, you were looking if you saw one per evening. And, and, and again, that just reinforces the message that we're not taking so seriously anymore as you were going about your business. I, I mean, I should declare here, I personally think that we my own take is that we locked down too soon and we did it too quickly. And that, coupled with the vague messaging in the second um, round of slogans, I think had a cumulative effect. We, we unlocked too quickly. We were being told to go back to work, if you can go back to work, and the vague messaging. And I think though, there was a cumulative interactive effect between those two things that have, have resulted in, in apathy, in cynicism, and I often think that, that we worried so much that Brexit was going to be a divisive event. I think coronavirus and whether it's a real thing or a made-up thing, whether it's genuine public health control or population control, I think this is now becoming a more divisive issue amongst people than Brexit has been. It really is polarizing people on whether they think it's real or whether they think it's all overhyped and inflated. And I think that's going to continue until we get some better messaging. I'll give you an example today. The, the Boris Johnson held a daily briefing, um, but it didn't have the same draw that it had when it when it was a daily thing, when it was it was almost an institution, half past four, get ready for the daily briefing. Now I think people don't even stop what they're doing. They'll just catch it with the highlights later on. It, they've really lost control. And I, I think that's the message that was given yesterday by Valence and Witty. We are not in control anymore. We were in control and now we've lost control again. 
yeah, that narrative and the importance of that narrative and ensuring that connection can never be sort of overstated. And as you say, initially, when we had this sort of real collective spirit towards it, as you say, with the briefings, everyone knew what, knew when and where information was coming out. Everyone knew sort of, they felt like an involvement, even if, as you say, they were very vetted. There was no surprises going to be thrown up. It still had that that sort of connection. And then we drifted into this sort of middle period. And I suppose as we look like we are with cases rising, entering this sort of second wave, do you think that the this third set, this new set of messaging, is it firm enough to sort of undo perhaps the damage that has been done by this second more vague period? That's a really good point and a good question. I think at this point we need to think, though, of course, that it is not just about the message. The message is really important and you need the good, clear message. But it isn't just about the message. It's also about the rules that are put in place being done so with an understanding of human behavior. So let's park the messaging to one side. If you remember when we began unlocking and you could go to pubs and you had to use the app and you had to socially distance and book a table. And then more recently when we saw the idea of the rule of six and um, you know you, pubs need to close by 10 p.m., those restrictions and laws have been put in place with what I would argue is a fundamental lack of understanding of human behavior. Not just human behavior when people are drunk and have had a few, but in general, human behavior when they're in a crowd or when they're in in a small group. It makes me wonder if any psychological input, behavioral science input, has been made through SAGE or government advisors, because we all know that people in a pub behave very differently from people in the office or people in a shop or people at home. And we know that when people have had a few, social distancing goes out the window as as inhibitions drop and and merriness increases. So even if you have the, the rules and restrictions correct, having a terrible messaging will will be counterproductive. In this case, now we've seen a reversal. The messaging is getting better, hands, face, face, but the restrictions are completely, um, I think, risible. We expect people at 10 o'clock to leave pubs and go home in an orderly fashion. And then we're suddenly surprised when people leave the pub at 10 o'clock, go to the supermarket or offy, buy a load of booze and head home and drink it. Why are we so shocked that people do this? So the message is now better. But the restrictions are unrealistic and show this fundamental lack of understanding. I call it flu, an FLU, fundamental lack of understanding of human behavior. If you could get both right at the same time, things might be better. Oh, definitely. And I suppose with your your background being quite heavily involved in psychology and occupational health psychology, it does give you sort of perhaps a different perspective to really pick out as you say the the perhaps lack of um attention that's been paid to human nature um in some of these these methods and these things but even sort of more generally do you think that we sort of we must make a much more conscious effort for these factors people put in because as you say people act very differently in an office to a pub to in the street and perhaps the one size fits all method isn't the right solution I mean, this is, this is, you know, it's an argument about paternalism and about individual freedom. What we can see in the initial stages of lockdown, when it was at it, its most harsh, where you could only leave your home for one period of exercise a day or for essential shopping or essential health-related uh, travel, people generally did comply. 
And the reason I think there was such a high level of compliance after the initial confusion and, and adaptation passed is because it was very easy to understand. Very easy to understand. Uh, where the rule of six, for example, uh, becomes so nebulous and detached from people's daily existence that they, 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 they struggle to cognitively remember what they can and can't do. To the point, of course, that we saw Boris Johnson the other day on national television get his own rules wrong. And the other thing I would say here is so much attention has been paid to the rule of six. You cannot do this, you cannot do that, no, no more than six here, no more than six there, that people are so busy trying to stick to the rule and not break the rules that they forget what the bigger picture is. And it became all about the rule of six. And that was the, the law with the small L, for want of a better phrase. We forgot actually why we were doing it and what the benefits of doing it were. It then doesn't help when we see more examples of do as we say, not as we do. So I, I think very shortly after the rule of six was brought in, it was perfectly legal, though, for shooting parties and hunting parties greater than six to congregate. And when that kind of story hits the press, you understandably get cynicism and anger and hostility from the general public at what clearly is a, a two-tier system. But in, 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 in the workplace, one of the reasons why the workplace for me has been a great arena for improving people's health or safety is that essentially you have somebody for eight hours a day, whether they're on a building site an office or a supermarket you've got them for eight hours a day and that's when you can put messages in place or strategies in place that increase their health or reduce their engagement in, in dangerous or, or unhealthy behaviors and some of the best behavioral change and by this i mean change for the better for for, for the good is brought about through workplaces um you know but you've got to be crafty how you do it so if if i went on a building site and I was trying to get construction workers to wear helmets and safety boots all of the time. You, you, you want to tailor the message for your audience. And for some construction sites, it might be a very simple, if you're caught without a helmet, you're sent home for the day and you don't get paid. For other construction workers, it might be more subtle. Everybody gets a bonus if you go 20 days without anybody caught not wearing a hat or boots. So there are ways of tailoring the message for the audience. Now, when the audience is a specific occupational group, that's easier. When you're trying to target the nation, then it gets a little bit more difficult, there's more, there's more variation. We saw in the early stages of the lockdown, of course, that, that many individuals said that the health message wasn't getting across to people who don't speak English as a first language. And, you know, and we saw the, the, idea, the notion that there were more infections in, in houses of, of multi-generational occupancy. And people say, well, perhaps there are people who don't speak English. And the message isn't getting through to them in the way it has been obviously being delivered in English. So when you're trying to deliver to a broad multicultural audience, you do have to take account of, of the, the entire range and variety of that audience and tailor your message accordingly. And I'm sure there will be plenty of studies done when this is all done and dusted, looking at how ineffective that message was for people of, who, who don't speak English as a first language or for people who don't watch TV or people who have got you know, visual impairments or, or hearing impairments. I think there'll be some interesting work done where we can see what went wrong and what could be done better for public health messaging tailors the entire needs of a society so it, it, it is unfortunate that that i think 
the, the, the subtle psychology of, of messaging has been lost. What would have been really good, if you think of how much creativity you see in advertising or how much creativity you see on YouTube videos or TikTok these days, so much creativity, some of that energy could have been used to provide us with really good, thoughtful, effective campaigns that would make our coronavirus behavior more secure. I haven't seen any of that creativity in the health messaging we've received, but I'm sure it's out there and could be accessed quite effectively and it would have a fantastic impact. You know, for a while we were blaming young people. Um, They were the ones who were spreading the disease. And, And what was the message that was brought up? Don't kill your grandma. Now, I don't think demonizing a particular group of society is fair or effective. And if the best yeah. thing to say to young people is, don't be selfish, you're going to kill your grandma, I don't think that's working. But if you'd have given a bunch of 20-somethings on TikTok a little budget to come up with something effective that would encourage young people to behave in a safer way, I think that could have been done in a much better way. So I'm not seeing the creativity in this health message that the, the, we've seen in other public health campaigns. I mean, I'm showing my age now, but if you look back to the to the HIV and AIDS campaigns of the early 80s, that was really effective stuff. It scared the willies out of you. Or, you know, the protect and survive messages from the 80, you know, 80s with Richard Burton telling you what you and your family should do in event of a nuclear attack. That was creative and effective. We're not seeing that here with coronavirus. It's almost like there's a creative bankruptcy which is a shame because creativity is a great way of getting your health message across effectively. Absolutely. And and as you sort of say there, if we take an, or do take an approach where we have a more personalized message for different groups, different sort of um, elements of the country, rather than this one macro sort of messaging, we'll probably see a lot of the clarity sort of ease and and be improved upon because a lot of the sort of issues we seem to see with restrictions is something new is brought in or then two days later there is some exemption or some exemption has to be introduced or taken away and that just causes a lot of sort of muddying of the water if there's more focused messaging i suppose you have the situation that actually say that young person who wants to know well how does this affect me there's something there for them that's probably very different to someone who's in, I don't know, their 60s, has retired and wants to know their sort of impacts. Yeah, and partly, you're right, this is the irrepressible nature of human behaviour. If we say to a group of people, to a society, you should not do this behaviour, some of them will find a way around that to do that behaviour, but in a way that exploits a loophole. So then the authority makes a change and says that you should also not do this too. And someone will find a way around that. And it's a constant game of cat and mouse. Rules being put in place, human behavior finding a way around it and finding a way to congregate and consume alcohol. You know, we, we saw the weekend in London, large gatherings in central London of people chucked out of the pub at 10 o'clock and they just decided to kind of take over the street and have an open air Mardi Gras. This is human nature. And you can put all the helicopters and, and police units there to disperse the crowd. They'll find some other way of congregating. You know, without again showing my age, and I'm worried that I'm showing my age a lot here. We saw this in the 1980s with rave culture. That the police would disperse a rave, and everybody would separate and go their own ways, and they'd meet up in a field 20 miles away in Cheshire, and your rave would commence again. And the police would crack down. It's human behaviour. So in a way, it, it's good to know that the human spirit. Of resistance is still alive, but unfortunately, 
when you have a highly communicable disease, that's also worrying at the same time. So using lockdowns and um, interrupting of that behavior in, in sporadic moments is only going to be effective to a point. What you really need to do is target people's motives and reasons. Why do you want to go and get drunk in a crowd of strangers? What is it about that that you can't do without for a couple of months? And again, effective messaging would work. Um, I I remember, oh gosh, about 15 years ago now, um, Scotland had a really, really effective anti-drink driving campaign. Certain constabularies in Scotland were having a real problem with drink driving. And instead of the usual don't drink drive message, they tried a different advertising campaign, which essentially said, if you drink drive, you are that guy. Your partner will disrespect you or lose respect for you. Your friends will shun you. Your employer will be ashamed of you. Your family, you know, you, you are basically that guy if you drink drive. So they used peer pressure to essentially say, if you're the guy who's caught drink driving, everybody will shun you. You're going against agreed society, acceptable norms, and you will be the outsider. And that campaign was incredibly effective in reducing drink driving behavior in Scotland. So we need something maybe a little bit like that, not the don't kill your grandma campaign, but something that that, that targets the individual to make them think, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy who's spreading disease and and causing people to die. So we, we could see that the public health messaging campaign might need to get a little dirty, might need to get a little uh, pointy of finger to try and make people think about their behaviours and whether they should go out drinking. Because at the moment, I think what people are thinking is, how do I manage to go out drinking? How can I operate within the law and still have my drinking activities? Whereas what we should be saying to people, the message should be saying, you really need to have that drink for the next few months. Can you do without? Here's the greater social good if you do. So the message isn't carrying the right... um, so the, the message isn't conveying the right idea to the, to the people at the moment. It's just a game of cat and mouse for many. Um, and I suppose that harks back to something that we mentioned earlier in this, that so we go forward and we look to hopefully improve these mess- this messaging. It does really come back to that, that idea that it's about reminding people why these restrictions are in place. It's not giving them a challenge of how do you fit this square um, peg into a round hole and you can continue to go out drink. It's reminding them why why you shouldn't and why you shouldn't do these and why you should follow these restrictions. Yes, and essentially people are good. You know, we have the odd bad egg and rotten apple, but essentially people are good. Um, and if we, we say to people, you know, this, this is what you could be doing to make things better, to help friends, relatives, neighbours, I think that will be, will, will be effective. I mean, the other messages we've, we've kind of seen, apart from that don't kill grandma, was when um, there was a real push on about four weeks ago for people to return to work. And, and Boris Johnson and co. were saying, well, people might not have a job to go back to if they don't start going back to work and filling the city centres. And there was an ad campaign that was run in central London on the tube, basically saying, oh, isn't it time to go back to your work family? Aren't you missing your accounts? Aren't you missing Jeff from advertising? And the amount of um, um, ridicule that campaign received from people saying, these are just people I work with. They're not my family. I'm not going to go back to work just to spend money in a Starbucks to keep them afloat. I'm not risking my life just for the sake of the economy. Again, they completely got that message wrong. People did not want to go back to work if they thought it was not safe to do so, just in the name of pumping the sandwich shops. So the, 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 in fact, the messaging has always got 
got it wrong. And this is why I hark back to saying you need someone who understands human working people. We need to understand that people's behavior, well, I, I just think that people who are, who are behind these campaigns don't fully understand human behavior and, and attitudes. I think there have been some what we would call revenge effects, unforeseen good side effects. So a revenge effect is, is something we didn't see coming. So in, in the 80s, the computer mouse was developed and people began using a computer mouse. What we didn't see, of course, is the number of people who would then report suffering things like work-related upper limb disorder or musculoskeletal problems from using a mouse several hours a day in the workplace. One of the positive revenge effects we've seen of coronavirus from what my friends in, in clinics uh, and, and GPs practices, GP surgeries tell me, is that there's been a really strong uptake for the winter flu virus inoculations and also for um, um, viral pneumonia, uh, the uptake for the inoculation for that as well, um, possibly because people are worrying that they may not be in the best shape and they're taking whatever they can to increase their chances should they contract coronavirus. So there is a, an unforeseen and unplanned positive aspect to the mismanagement of the pandemic in that people are taking it upon themselves to take everything they're offered if it increases their chances. So that's a good thing. And as far as I'm understanding at the moment, we're not running out of winter flu virus uh, vaccines or pneumonia. There's plenty there to go around. But that, that, that uptake is good. Um, it's just a shame that it's taken this kind of pandemic mismanagement to have that sort of result. Certainly. And I suppose that, that is the, the, the positive to take away from well, a conversation that we've had that's been very important about effectively the the mismanagement or the the things that could have been improved on that as much as those situations have happened there are some positives to have come out of this and i think collectively identifying those areas understanding where we can move forward but also reminding people that it's not the end of the world doom and gloom as difficult of a time as it is will make a, a huge difference yes i mean there's a lot to be said for the role of optimism and positivity and knowing that that, that this will pass and that at some point in the future, things will get back to normal. Um, I mean, I'm, one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is how Christmas is going to be marketed. Um, and and there's, there's always an upside. So the idea is that, that we may not have the usual traditional Christmas we look forward to, and that large gatherings will be discouraged. So what could happen is we will be having more but smaller family Christmases up and down the country. What this possibly means is we might not have enough turkeys for all these Christmas dinners that we'll be having. There'll be more but smaller Christmas dinners, which means we might have a turkey shortage, which means the prices of turkeys could go through the roof. But being optimistic, I'm sure our friends who work in the world of marketing will find a way to change the marketing this year and say, this year Christmas is about you. It's not about cooking for 20 people and having the mother-in-law around. Christmas is all about you. And why not buy a dot, 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 dot? So again, I think we will see marketing taking advantage of the restrictions on our social gatherings, and we will probably have an entirely different Christmas from one we've ever had before. But it's about seeing that as a good thing. You know, for this year, you don't have to cook for 20 people. That's a positive. Have a relaxed, easy, non-Christmas Christmas, if that's a thing. So there's always an upside, and that's the part of the thing about being a psychologist, is trying to, to say to people, there's always an up. You know, would you rather look down or look up? We, we try and look up. 
Uh, there's going to be lots of those little behavioural uh, things that we will see, I think, over the next six months as we carry on the way we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And that is just one example of it, but it's a great example of just, like you say, a situation that is likely to happen. But if you flip the, mar- the sort of narrative and the messaging out for it, it can make it seem a lot better. It can make it seem a lot clearer. It can make it seem a lot more willing to engage with it. And that's that creativity that we spoke throughout about that we'd like to see come into the wider messaging. And I think the conversations we've had here have been incredibly important and I think will make a huge difference to people who have listened to and maybe have had similar thoughts, but they've maybe not had the same understanding or they've not had the expertise or the background to really pick out actually what is it within that that is why I feel like that or I'm feeling like this isn't getting a message that's across to me that's clear. So I think in, as I'm conscious not to to run this too long because i could talk for hours about it. i think it's fascinating um i really do appreciate it, and i'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well craig you taking the time to talk through all of this happy to i just hope you uh, get your christmas turkey early while you still can In, indeed um but no thank, thank you very much and hopefully this has had a, a big or a, an important impact to the people that have listened to it today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor evo north uniting leaders from the public and private sector to collaborate, share exciting innovations, and build a stronger Northern powerhouse together. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.